Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, Chris Raja talks with Sunil Badami about his memoir, Into the Suburbs, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hi, I'm Sunil Badami, and welcome to the Byron Bay Writers' Festival podcast series, Conversations from Byron. And although we're not in Byron, I'd like to acknowledge the Arakwal Bumbabun people of the Byron Shire and the Wongal people of the Eora Nation, where I work and live in Sydney, as the traditional custodians on the land on which we gather and of the stories, songs and knowledge we share. I pay respect to the Elders past and present and ask that you share with us respect for country. You know, growing up, I was always being asked where I was really from, even though I was born and grew up in Blacktown, in Sydney's outer western suburbs. And I was always torn between my parents' own culture, which my mother tried to instil with me, and which I now regret rejecting, so that I could fit in more with an Aussie culture that often also rejected me as not Aussie enough. Those stories of home mum would tell us all the time seemed as mythological as anything I'd find in old Amma Chitrakarta comics about Indian history and mythology that she'd make us read to learn about that great foreign country, the past. Salman Rushdie famously said in his seminal essay, Imaginary Homelands, that for those of us who emigrated, there must be times when the move seems wrong to us all, when we realise we're now partly of the West, our identities at once plural and partial. Sometimes we feel that we straddle two cultures, at other times that we fall between two stools. But however ambiguous and shifting this ground may be, it's not infertile territory for a writer to occupy. If literature is in part the business of finding new angles at which to enter reality, then once again our distance, our long geographical perspective, may provide us with such angles. As Jonathan Franzen famously said, we are the stories we tell ourselves and each other. And with stories coming from one of the world's oldest cultures in India and the world's oldest culture here in Australia, it seems for immigrants like Chris or the children of immigrants like me, and over 52% of all Australians who were born overseas or have at least one parent born overseas, that the stories we tell might not only tell us who we are, but how to make sense of how we got here, connecting identity and place where knowing either can sometimes be tricky. It's a story Chris Raja has endeavoured to tell in his wonderful memoir, 
Into the Suburbs, a Migrant Story, published by the University of Queensland Press. All happy families are happy in the same way, declared Leo Tolstoy at the start of his epic, Anna Karenina. And all unhappy families are unhappy in their own. Like many migrants, for Edith and David Raja, coming to Australia was full of promise, especially for their son Chris. And like many migrants, like my parents, they left behind successful lives and careers in their homeland to start from scratch, both professionally and personally. But while they strove to be normal Aussies and Chris embraced the freedoms and distractions of his adopted country, his parents both became more and more disenchanted. And just as Chris started taking his first steps into adulthood, the family was rocked by an unexpected tragedy. Now, I can give you the blurb about Chris Raja. He migrated from Kolkata to Melbourne in 1986 at the age of 11. He lived and worked in Alice Springs for over 15 years, where he co-authored the acclaimed play The First Garden, about pioneering horticulturist Olive Pink with his then-wife, Natasha Raja. He's the author of the wonderful young adult novel, The Burning Elephant, published in 2015 by Giramondo Books, the recipient of a number of grants and prizes, including from the Australia Council, Varuna, the Writer's House, and he's currently the University of Technology Sydney Copyright Agency Limited New Writer's Fellow, which must make for quite a business card. But beyond all that, Chris and I, born in the same year, having grown up in the outer western suburbs, of both our respective Sydney cities, Melbourne and Sydney, and having very formidable Indian mothers, have known each other for years. So it's a real pleasure to welcome you, Chris. How are you? Hi, Sunil. Really good to see you. I mean, sorry, hear you and uh, catch up again. Um, and what a wonderful introduction you've just given. <laughs> So, Chris, you've written about your childhood in Kolkata and emigration to Australia fictionally in The Burning Elephant in 2015. Uh, why did you write about your childhood non-fictionally now? And how did the fiction inform or influence the memoir? As a writer, um, these questions are hard to, hard to know why we do these things. I mean... As you, as you know, we write out of both a compulsion and a sense of work and duty and a sense of labor. And um, it's a combination of factors. Um, the compulsion's always there to keep writing. I don't know why. Um, the labor involves structure, approaching publishers and their agendas. And that then defines the type of work that you end up with. So it would be a bit of a leap for me to say, oh, I intended it for, to, for it to be like this. I didn't intend it in any, you know, I didn't have control, complete control in the way, you know, I'd write a play or a novel and a YA novel and, and then this memoir. I just carried these experiences with me you know, growing up in India, then coming to Australia, moving to Alice Springs, living near a botanical garden. Um, and the world around me informed what I ended up writing. The writing itself was then shaped by something else. 
And I think the story then informed me or told me, hey, I want to be in this form or other. And that was quite an interesting process because I didn't think I was a playwright. I didn't think I was a YA novel and I didn't think I was a memoirist. I always just thought I was a writer. In the same way, I didn't think I was Indian. I didn't think I was Australian. I didn't think I was a migrant. I just thought I was a human. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, those questions of identity, but going back to um, the process of writing, especially writing memoir, when I guess, you know, memory and imagination are so interlinked and sometimes difficult to distinguish, how did you remember or recover so many evocative and seemingly quotidian details in the memoir into into the suburbs. I mean, you know, you talk about the clothes we used to wear and the music we used to listen to and even the snacks we used to eat. And I was instantly kind of transported back to the mid 80s and early 90s, you know, where I was a teenager and a young adult as well. What research did you do? Uh, there was two There was two parts to writing this book, Sunil. Uh, there was the first part, which was written by a young man. So an earlier version of this manuscript was written during those early years of grief, those early years of being a, a te- um, not a teenager, but a, but a young adult. And then the book, the manuscript was abandoned. And parts of it were published in various places, but I thought I'd abandon this memoir style, this first person style. I'd also thought, initially I thought I was writing a novel, so using my experiences. And I'd, I'd written this, this uh, draft and went out of my way to delete all evidence of it. Went to, and then wrote other things. Caught up with another friend of mine who I hadn't seen for ages. And they asked me, what, what were you, you know, what, whatever happened to that story that, about your dad and, and, you know, coming to Australia? And I thought I deleted it, but except I went back to my emails and, and I found that, that there was one email that contained this draft, you know, and which I then proceeded to have a look at it and rework it. And that's why there's this immediacy, but also this perspective in, in the writing. It's kind of reminiscent of Bulgakov saying, you know, that uh, manuscripts never burn. You know that you were able to find it um, in the emails. I mean, I'm I'm kind of recall the fact that you know in the novel I'd spent thirteen or fourteen years writing was lost when my computer was stolen, <laughs> and I've had to rewrite it ever since. I, uh, I've often thought of that story, uh, Sunil, about how you lost that manuscript. <laughs> and, yeah, that's why I'm often backing up my stories and emailing them to myself. I mean, Hemingway lost his manuscript too, and I often make that comparison with you. Perhaps the, perhaps the great works are coming. I look forward to them. <laughs> I mean, fiction does give us a kind of cover, doesn't it? You know, we can say that any resemblance to people living or dead is purely coincidental, and I guess it's something that you did explore to a degree, even though... In the Burning Elephant, you know, you have a young boy growing up near Serpentine Lane with a father who's a headmaster. The circumstances are very, very different. But having written so powerfully and honestly about your life and family, why did you move away 
from this manuscript and what reservations or qualms did you have about writing so powerfully and honestly? I didn't have reservations about writing um, powerfully and honestly at any point. Um, Partly, you know, we often talk about diversity in Australia, diversity in publishing. And you see, the manuscript that I'd written, say, 20 years ago, if this book, this book wouldn't have been published 20 years ago. There was, uh, you know, there was, there there was a very different environment. These stories weren't uh, appreciated. And only now the time is starting to uh, change. The tide has changed and people want to hear these stories. The fact is, I could have published this book um, 20 years ago. Uh, I had to wait till the publishing industry caught up to me, catch up, you know, <laughs> and caught up to people like you too. So, 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 you know, I mean, it's all well and good to, for people to say, hey, we support diversity. But people like you and me, we've been, we've been writing for a long time and, and we've, been, we've been there for a long time. So, so stories like this have been there. And we, I often wonder, what other stories we've lost in the process. But I mean, you know, Benjamin Law, Michael Muhammad Ahmed, Peter Polites, Maxine Beniba Clark, Sarah El Syed, Alice Pung, you. Why do you think there is so much interest in, you know, ethnic suburban stories now? Um, and I say that with inverted commas, air quotes for those who can't see. Why do you yeah. think there is so much interest in quote unquote oh. ethnic suburban stories now, given how white Australian publishing is? Well, I think I think these stories are all our stories. It's not so much ethnic or or or, or some 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 um, some hidden category. I mean, as you were saying in your introduction, um, a number of you know one of the highest rates of migrants that are coming to Australia are from Indian background, and um, you know that was that was a formidable list of writers that you mentioned and 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 commentators and most of them are in their 30s, early 40s. I'm still thinking, though, about our parents' generation, for, for instance, and, 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 you know, the amount of writers that have come before us as well that we didn't get to see or hear from. Yes, I mean, you could virtually say that we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, those Indian writers writing about India... Especially those, I guess, non-resident Indians like Salman Rushdie or Vikram Seth or, you know, um, Rohinton Mystery. They were kind of inspirations for me because I suddenly saw India in my own language. You know, I didn't grow up speaking my parents' language and they spoke different languages to each other. So I always felt a little bit lost in translation, not only from India to Australia, but between my parents as well. How did you feel about that what Rushdie called, you know, being caught between two stools. That's interesting. Um, well, why did why did why are there only those sort of names? Um, uh, Vikram Seth, who also influenced me a great deal, um, and and uh, you know, and and the great Naipaul and 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 Hanif Hanif Qureshi, of course. Um, um, they they were they were pretty much phenomenons in the US and. And obviously in the UK, um, whilst that was not happening here in Australia. And so we looked towards them as diaspora writers and we got our inspiration from them. But when I was in my early 20s, I went, I did my honours thesis on Edward Said's 
Edward Said and Ian Forster and Nirad Chowdhury. And I was interested in, in how the West viewed India. So Western perceptions of India. And I compared Western perceptions of India in my thesis with how Indians viewed India. And I noticed that there was quite a difference. And, there, and, and that was very helpful for me as a young man and also me as a writer, because I came from India, but then I was othered. I was seen as another, you know, an other. So, hey, why aren't, you know, did you really ride on elephants in India? I, you know, how, how do you know to speak English? Do you speak Hindu? These were questions asked. And I thought, these people know nothing about India. And that was me as a teenager, you know, being, being frustrated. But then they would ask my parents these questions. And my parents would think, what have we entered? What time zone? What time warp? What reality have we walked into where these people are asking us these inane questions? I mean, you've got to remember, my dad was a principal at the age of 30. He already had about three masters, and he's walking into questions like this. So why did your parents choose to come to Australia over, you know, the US or UK? I know that my parents came to Australia in the kind of immediate aftermath of the white Australia policy because my father couldn't, wasn't accepted into any hospitals or immigration programs in the US and UK. And so Australia was almost like the last resort. Why did your family choose to come? The UK was definitely an option. Um, uh, so that was that was that was uh, that was considered. In fact, Dad had an, Dad was offered a master's uh, philosophy at, to you know scholarship actually in in the UK um, before we came. Um, partly uh, because I've I, my mum's side's an Anglo Indian family. Uh, there was there were other relatives that already came here because of the um, family reunion. I was a factor, so there were other earlier relatives, and so that that I think influenced my family. But in particular, what appealed to them was this postcard image of Australia being an egalitarian, easygoing place where it was full of opportunity and beaches and. Everyone was your mate. And that really appealed to my dad, who was an orphan, who really knew what it was like to experience a tough life in Bombay. And he helped so many people in India. I mean, he was a very, um, a very amazing individual who, who helped educate the poor of Calcutta, who helped educate the elites of Calcutta. And they all loved him equally. He was an extraordinary man, and and I just, I just have so much love for him, and my mom, who also educated, who knew people like Mother Teresa, and you know, and they were, you know, Victor Banerjee, the, you know, the the, the Indian actor, Sashi Kapoor. They moved with with people that were very sophisticated, but also very humble, and they also, you know, helped a lot of people, and my parents are my heroes. And I just, you know, and they're friends. And so I would, I was exposed to all this as a young age. And I still, I still 
it still um, it still influences me. It makes me want to write. It makes me want to tell stories and share this love and sense of justice. And and uh, that's what drives me in a way. Chris, you talked about you know how influential and how intrinsic to their community your parents were in India. Why did they leave all that behind to come to Australia? There was a sense, as I mentioned earlier, um, a sense of ambition in in my fa- family uh, to to not just help others, but also to help you know um, help me. Actually, so a lot of parents, um, a lot of parents you know, think so much, especially Indian families think a lot, oh, you know, how can we help our children? What, what opportunities can we give our children? So that was, that was a factor. But of course, uh, family reunion was, a, was, a, was, was another factor, as I alluded to earlier. And, um, and thirdly was the sense that Australia was this egalitarian land of opportunity. I mean, I'm always reminded of that great joke, you know, how many Indian mothers does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, <laughs> Have you heard the joke, Chris? Have you heard the no, joke? No, I've heard the joke about divorced husbands changing the light bulb. Tell me about the joke about the mothers. I'll tell you about the divorced husbands if you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the joke goes like this. How many Indian mothers does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. Don't mind me. I'll just sit here in the dark while I pray to God for you to give me two grandsons who become cardiologists in America. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you another joke then, but no, I'll leave my I'll leave my joke out of it. Well, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on the children of immigrants to fulfil their destiny, and yeah. we hear that a lot in the book. You know, your parents, hmm. especially your father, saying, "You know, we want you to take advantage of all your opportunities. Start studying, you idiot." I felt like I could hear my own father speaking to me. You know, in yeah. your own, in your dad. Yeah. And so there is that kind of pressure to fulfil their destiny, to make good on their parents' sacrifices, of which your parents made a lot, and to become successful, not only, I guess, professionally, but personally, to become ideal Aussies. What kind of pressures did you face from your parents and community, and how did you deal with them? There was a lot of freedom I found initially because, of course, my parents were busy working and trying to, you know, get a house and get a car and do all those things that migrants do, uh, especially when they first arrived. So as wh- while I was having while that pressure, I mean, I knew that they'd made a number of sacrifices to, to get me here. But I also got, you know, it was a strange mix because at the same time, I'd also received this immense sense of uh, freedom by coming here because my parents were so busy. And so that kind of stability, that middle-class kind of stability that, that, that was offered when, when you have parents who are teachers and stuff in, in India. And then when they come to Australia and, you know, they're working in factories and trying to, trying to rebuild from literally nothing, um, was, very liberating for a naughty teenager like me. So, um, so that was a real concern for my parents. And so I try and document some of that in the memoir, but at the same time there, you know, this, this emphasis on learning and reading. I mean, I stopped reading because I was getting teased at school, you know, Hey, you're a, you're a nerd. If you read, Hey, you know, so, and so of course any racist 
you know, calls and stuff, you know, I realized that, that I had to become more masculine. And when I, when I came here, it was a huge transformation. I felt like I needed to be more masculine. I needed to become, um, emphasize my sporting abilities, which I, I loved sport. I was a swimmer and a cricketer, even in India. And, and so I, I decided, well, this issue of masculinity was really emphasized in Australia, different to Indian masculinity, which was still exists in a very strong way. And so these expectations ranged not just from my parents. These expectations came from all angles. And that was really overwhelming. And working out what, whose expectations I was to fulfill was something that I juggled with and tried to write about. Now, you have written so honestly, like rawly honestly, not just about yourself, but about a lot of people in your family and people that you grew up with. How did they react to the book? I mean, you do really re reveal a lot of secrets, you know, around drugs and sex that are scandalous for good Indian families. Well, I mean, perhaps scandalous, perhaps, but they also, um, you know, my family and everyone who knows me knows that I'm very uh, honest and very upfront. And, and I think they appreciate that. I mean, you know, we often we often put up a mask to society, and and we pretend what you know we are something else. And as we get broken in life, we realize that we're not so special, and that and that we are all, you know, we all have we all have these shortcomings, you know, whether it's addictions, whether it's deaths whether it's, you know, grieves, grieving, grieving, um, you know, that's what makes us human. And I think that's what my family values in me. And so even the cousins that I wrote about that, you know, came across as perhaps, you know, in one way or the other, they all came up to me, the, the ones that could, um, could come up to me that, that are still alive, uh, came up to me and said, good on you for writing that. That was brave. And, um, they're all my my family are my heroes, as I say. My friends are my heroes. I'm a very loyal person, and and they I took I you know, I I try and present life as it is and how we are, and and ultimately they're all the people that I I, I wouldn't change a thing. I I love I love I love life, <laughs> but I, of course you know you never want to hurt anyone, and uh, uh, you know with the pen. I remember my dad told me, you know, there's two ways that you can be a bully. You can be a bully with 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 your with your with your fist, but you can also be a bully with your mind, and uh, and and I know this writing caper um, can wield its own wounds, and so it has to be done with great humility and consultation, and I tried I tried my best to balance those things. And I, I often remember what dad said about that, you know, about being a bully with your fist and bully with your mind. It's a memoir, but you do write in a very literary fictional style. And when I say a literary fictional style, I don't mean that it's hoity-toity or difficult or challenging. In fact, it's such an easy read. I think it's a reflection of your skill as a writer that it's so evocative and so direct you know there's nothing in it i could see or feel that wasn't necessary to be there but given that it is written in a very creative non-fictional style yes. what other fictional devices did you employ to create as you say the hardest part of writing a story which is around the structure and the narrative mm. 
you know, did you amalgamate characters or change names to protect the innocent or merge Mm. or conflate events? I mean, what do these do to or for the truth of the story? Uh, Well, Gandhi wrote that very interesting book, Experiments with Truth. So I come from a, we come from a long tradition of writers who have experimented with notions of truth, Sunil, as you know. <laughs> and we know that any notion of truth is an experiment. I mean, Gandhi put it best, experiment, my experiments with truth. And in a way, my writing is an experiment with truth. Uh, I'm, not defi- I'm not saying I'm defining truth by my writing. I mean, no Indian would say that. <laughs> But, you know, we're writing, we're writing from, we're writing, using the tools that we have at a certain time, and we try and hone our craft. I mean, and we're just like other writers. Um, I'm just like another writer who's trying to present, you know, um, as well as I can, the material that I have been working on for a number of years in the best possible way to a publisher who then may or may not take up my work and then that relationship um, then produces the work that ends up there so it's a it's it's working with it it's working with a team of people but also um, an ongoing process of revision and drawing upon all those skills that you've accumulated over the years from, you know, when your mother read to you and told you bedtime stories to um, meeting that special teacher at high school who, who told you maybe you should write a book one day or gives you a book to read um, to your, and this is uh, to your university lecturers and then through your friends like Sunil or like, um, you know, our friends uh, in, yeah. So, so yeah, just, it's an ongoing process. It's still going. <laughs> that was such a great answer. It's interesting, though, because a very pom- prominent publisher, you may know, I recall one of Australia's greatest writers who had moved kind of from fiction into nonfiction, telling me about a moment with this publisher saying that nonfiction wasn't as, I guess, artistically important as fiction because... Unlike fiction, the characters still existed outside of the story, the words to that effect. And I guess the big thing about nonfiction is is that it's your story, but it's also the story of everyone around you, especially your parents and your family. What responsibility do you feel to telling their stories as part of your own? I'd like to address that question. The first, there's two questions in that. I'd, I'd like to address the first part of that question first which was what's artistic and not. And I, I really appreciate that question because so often as migrant writers, we don't get asked enough about the artistic process of it. And yes, I did think a lot about that. In fact, I'm constantly thinking of what is artistic and not. And yes, is can memoir or nonfiction be as artistic as fiction and a novel? Um, can a play be as beautiful as a novel? Can, can we have poetry in a play? Can we have poetry in a novel? Can we have poetry in 
a memoir. These are questions that I think about all the time. And yes, some great prose writers, Patrick White's memoir is not as good as his novels. In fact, I've got his memoir. It's not very good. I love Patrick White's novels. But there are other writers like Elias Canetti, whose nonfiction work is predominantly most of his work is brilliant, including his memoirs. And he wrote one novel, which is also brilliant. And so there are various traditions, uh, both in India and Europe, of making the memoir and the nonfiction into high art. And early on, I decided I wanted to write in a variety of forms and voices and just aim high and not really worry what anyone else thinks or says. The second part of your question was different. And that is, how do I consider other people's feelings about how they may appear in my story? which is a completely different process. Should I answer that? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like daily life. I mean, I'm constantly thinking about other people's feelings. It's like seeing, you know, it's like being on a bus, you know. Sometimes I have to let someone else in front of me. I have to make sure I don't step on someone else's toes. Um but the art and stepping on someone's toes are two different processes, and I juggle them. I'm Sunil Badami, and I'm chatting to writer Chris Raja about truth, fiction, family, feeling, and more in his moving and affecting memoir, Into the Suburbs, A Migrant's Journey, published by University of Queensland Press on the Byron Bay Writers' Festival podcast, now, Chris, we, are, we were talking before, you know, about Indian mothers and light bulbs and how mums are the heroes of the family. And we often think of mums as being the heart of the family. But in both your books, your father has played such a big role. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I, early, I, I mean he, was, he was a very special guy. I mean, that, you know whether he was my father or not he he was a special man he was a special guy i mean he was an orphan he 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 raised himself up you know and became a headmaster in india he helped a lot of people he had a great sense of service and justice so just just based on that those qualities you know he was he was just one of those people that helped a lot of people he had a great sense of um humanity in him and he was also flawed um, and, and so he was greatly loved. He was greatly loved because he was so, he was, so, you know, his, his flaws were so obvious as well. And he knew that. And so he could recognize flaws in others, uh, very quickly. And so he was a very infectious person. You know, when he smiled, you knew he really smiled. When he was angry, you knew he was angry, but he, he was just a, but he, you knew that he wanted the best for you and he knew that he was going to give you the best or whatever he had. I mean, and that's, you know, he had those sort of qualities. So, you know, if he, if he met someone, he would share with them whatever he had. I mean, he, had, he was an orphan, so he knew what it was like to not have anything. So if he did have something, he wanted to share it. He wanted to give it. And he didn't think about what he had in return, what he got, what he got in return, because he knew that 
he could get more. That was his life. I mean, you know, he didn't he didn't have much, but but he always he always remembered the people that were loyal to him. His big sister, my aunt Thelma, who 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 had this young boy and then didn't have parents herself and then raised the boy. He always said, "Oh, I'm so glad my sister didn't put me in an orphanage." And she and she and her husband raised me as if I was one of their children. They helped educate me. He he did feel a bit of a burden to his older siblings because he was the youngest. And occasionally he got, you know, in India they say, you know, you got to you know, there was a bit of corporal punishment from the older brother. But he still loved them, you know, and he was this just this genuine guy and apparently yeah, he got beaten up a bit. And so so you know, I just love him. And I still love him. I miss him. And then there's my mom, who who also had a difficult childhood. But you know, these people were all class. They were a different. They were a different type of generation. And they 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 put their they put their experiences into giving back to other people through education and helping. They just helped so many people. So. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I was really surprised, I guess, you know, having grown up in a Hindu family and your family being what we would call Anglo-Indian, you know, Christian, English-speaking, Western names. Although, of course, as you reveal in the book, it's not that you're actually closer, I guess, to my family's, you know, long history than... I may have perceived at the beginning, but, uh, you know, uh, getting to know you, but what really struck me about your parents talking about service and humility was how similar it was to many of the ideas that my family, especially on my mother's side, who were involved in the independent struggle and friends with, you know, people like uh, Tagore and, you know, and um, Annie Besant and the Theosophists and the Indian National Congress, you know, that whole sense of, that Nehru socialism of sacrifice, of service. But, you know, there's also a kind of element, I guess, similar to that loyalty, that Confucian loyalty in Chinese society to family, to the better good, to the kind of abnegation of self. How did that kind of inform or conflict with your Australian individualism? There's, there's, there's one thing that I need to um, address in that question, and that is this sense of, you know, what is an Anglo-Indian and what is a Christian Indian? Uh, and this was partly one of the reasons why a number of Anglo-Indians had to leave India and a number of Christians left India, is because this questioning of who is an authentic Indian, as we're seeing in current day mm. politics. Um, you know, there are Jewish people in India going back 2,000 years. There are mosques. There are um, synagogues in Kerala. Vasco um, da Gama came in, as you know. And, and so there's this long tradition that, that we fit into, but also um, that within the same family, there were these... Hindus, Gujaratis. My grandmother's a Gujarati on my dad's side, and 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 um, and um, you know, so so 
it's very fluid. Um, you know, my, one of my grandfathers changed his surname, as I say in the start, overnight, decided to change his religion. I mean, India has this great capacity to incorporate <laughs> and, and adapt and transform. So whether it's, the, whether it's the Muslims' influence, whether it's the British, you know, before the Muslims, before the, before the Mughals were the Buddhists, you know, and, and, and before that, there were the Hindus, the Vedas, as you know. And so there's this great thousands of years that it was constantly evolving and transforming. And so by the time I came to Australia, I was well prepared. It was in my genes to transform. And uh, Indians are always transforming. We're the greatest chameleons on the planet. I know it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people don't actually realize that there were Christians in India before there were Christians in Britain, you know, St. Paul, St. Thomas, St. Thomas, the yes, Dada, St. Thomas came in Kerala, Kerala yes, yes, and yes. died in Chennai in South India. Yeah. And I sort of, uh, yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, and, and my mom's from Kerala and, and I mean, I write about that. I mean, in one of the characters in the burning elephant, God, I didn't realize that Chris, your mum's from Kerala. My mum's from yeah. Kerala. Yeah. You're a, you're a, you're yeah, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, Look, I feel like there's so many points of, you know, commonality between us. I mean, it's not just the fact that, you know, we grew up in the outer suburbs of our respective city, that our mothers come from Kerala, that, you know, your family, at least on your father's side, was Hindu right up until the moment that your grandfather changed his name. I mean, my grandfather changed our family name from Rao to Badami in the same way that your grandfather yeah. changed it from Rajaratnam to, Ra yeah. you know, Raja. And I... What are you talking about, you know, the idea of transformation, almost this reincarnation from one life to the next, one path, you know, one place to another. It kind of makes me wonder, I mean, what does this mean for identity? And what is identity? Is it fixed? Is it in flux? Or is it somewhere <laughs> in between? Well, Sunil, <laughs> a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, it's great that we're talking about talking about these things uh, for the Byron Bay Writers Festival. I remember as a young man going to Byron Bay and everyone changes their name when they go to Byron Bay. And one day I went to Byron Bay and I said, hey, you know what my name is right now? My name is Raja Charming Cloud. Say it loud. And <laughs> as a joke, you know. And, and, but there is a long tradition of people changing their names. Siddhartha became Buddha. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi became the Mahatma. We're always changing. That is the essence of who we are. And I had most of my childhood education in India. And all those stories of these great people are like just there. So I walk around with this Australian accent, with this Australian look. But I carry all that history that I learned, all that, all that stuff that my parents taught me. And it's all there. And that's why, you know, my work is like this mysterious baggage that I carry with me in the same way, like, you know, The Burning Elephant, which you mentioned earlier, is an Australian novel, but it doesn't mention Australia at all. Because I carry that burning elephant with me in my work wherever I go. And so, you know... It's like, it's like these concepts of, of, of names and transformation. We only have to look at the lives of 
those great people, Siddhartha, Gandhi, and see the transformation. And with Gandhi, it's particularly interesting because he went to the West and then came back, went to Africa and then came back. And so, so I mean, you know, that's, that's another interesting trope, which is happening all the time. We see that in a number of literary books. I mean, in Imaginary Homelands, Rushdie says that to be an Indian writer in this society is to face everyday problems of definition. What does it mean to be Indian outside India? How can culture be preserved without becoming ossified? How should we discuss the need for change within ourselves and our community? What are the consequences, both spiritual and practical, of refusing to make any concessions to Western ideas and practices? What are the consequences of embracing them? Now, don't worry, they're not questions. <laughs> but I guess the I was thinking, wow, well, you know, like, I'm becoming a sage now. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, in Australia, when people ask me where I'm really from and I say Blacktown, but don't tell anyone, we don't want to affect the property <laughs> values. Once they discover where my mother's from, I'm mm. Indian. And when I'm anywhere else overseas, including in India, I'm Australian. Does that happen to you? Why do you think that uh, that is? You know, because I'm not Indian. Yeah. You are. Well... So do you still yeah. feel like a migrant? Well, this is where... How do you feel about the hyphen mm. between the Indian and Australian, in inverted commas, Indian-Australian rider? This is where it's good to be a mummy's boy, right? Because when I think of my mum, I don't think I'm a hyphen. I don't think I'm an Indian. I'm an Australian. I think I'm part of sunshine. That sunshine in Melbourne's outer suburbs? <laughs> Well, I mean, well, I'm thinking of Byron Bay sunshine. I'm thinking of the light in Sydney. I mean, it's this connection that's something bigger. And I think that's the beauty of it, is that when we think of a higher self, and, and that's what, you know, Freud said the same thing. I said, he said, he said, you look at, you look at um, people that, that don't get defined by you know, what people tell them about themselves, generally have a very good relationship with their mother. And, and you know, people like me don't really care how we're defined. We're just going to keep redefining those definitions. So, Chris, thinking about those, you know, the, Rushdie talking about that space between stools, I, I kind of think of that space between oceans, you know, between... India and Australia and the sense of homesickness I get when I'm in India, even though I'm there for India or my idea of India or the idea of my mother's memory of India, a kind of India that I feel distance from because I don't speak any Indian language. You know, I, I, I'm hopeless with festivals. I, I you know, I, I tie my lungi very awkwardly, and my family all laugh at me because of my accent, you know? I remember once my uncle, we were on a tour with my uncle in India, and, um, you know, they take you around to all the beauty spots and the pleasure spots, and you go and visit all the family. You're like this kind of caravanserai of, you know, aunties you've never heard of, and so-and-so-and-so who is related to someone very tenuously by marriage, third times removed, but all that sort of stuff, right? And I remember saying to my uncle, so are we going today? And he said, of course we're going to die. Everybody must die. I die, you die. But if you are good, you'll be born again. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because my family in India 
they can't understand my Australian accent. So the closest I get to speaking to them in a way that they can understand is putting on the Peter Sellers birdie num num accent, right? My uncle used to always say, What man? Speak properly. And so I would start to speak like that. And just as I became used to speaking in that accent and the noise and the colour and the smells and all of the too muchness of India, we'd come back to Australia and I would think, oh my God, where is everybody? Now, I'd really love to hear a little bit about that nature of belonging and I guess loss as well that comes from emigration and immigration um, from into the suburbs. Would you like to share a little reading from the book? So, yeah, I'll just read this. By the time we were back in clean and organised Melbourne, I had gained a new perspective on the world. As we drove to Keysborough from the airport, I was filled with the familiar. The freeways, the gardens, the beaches, the cafes and pubs. There were empty parks everywhere. Beautiful public gardens set aside for enjoyment and recreation, with no people using them. The roads, the petrol stations, the quiet streets. It was exactly as it had been when we migrated. We were in exile. Our birthplace was a long way off. The following day, I woke up and spent the morning with the travel agent in Parkmore, considering flights back to Calcutta, questioning where I should possibly be. If we could have predicted what lay ahead during those days in India, where all this began, we might not have had the courage to migrate. Unable to think clearly, I went home and lay on my bed. Looking out the window, over the green lawn, onto the silent street, small trees, neighbours' houses and blue sky. That weekend I attended church and the pastor preached that we are haunted by a spiritual homelessness, invested in our personal life projects, and are no longer in a relationship with God, and in the process we have forgotten who we are. I thought deeply about that statement. Who we are is very much defined by the locations we are in and the company we keep. We are exiled from the womb, from our homes, from our schools, our work. If our sense of safety is removed, we are exiled. The power of memory plays a significant role in our sense of identity and belonging. We have a sacred identity and want to be recognised by those we love and be able to give a report of all that relates to us. I struggled to develop a structure to my days. Returning from Melbourne to Calcutta and then back to Melbourne had transformed my perception of past and future. I wondered what happened to the people who had died and the others I knew but no longer saw. Whatever happened to old classmates and lovers? Did the dead remember the living? I wondered if Nana Gemma and Dad would remember me. 
Would death be like a homecoming where we are welcomed by a creator, can recognize and be recognized by our loved ones and be able to share stories about all that has happened since that previous meeting? The questions never stopped. We want to be seen and identified by those we love regardless of how we changed. We might be by time. Questions of identity, I had come to understand, could be prompted by a holiday. But also by a word, a look, a bird, or plant, a stranger, or a song. Sometimes homesickness tastes sweet, and at other times, sour. Wow, that was so beautiful, and it kind of articulated, you know, I think for me, that space between words, you know, all the things that are left unsaid, especially by our parents, you know, the things they can't tell us, and the things we sometimes can't understand, especially for my parents, you know, um, and especially my mother, for whom English is not her first language, even though she speaks it very well, she, you know, I always feel even without the kind of barrier of language, and I find my mother starting to speak in her own language more and more, she starts to remember those words more than she often remembers English words at the moment. And I have no word to give her because I don't know those words at all. Speaking of things we can't talk about, you know, at the heart of the book is a really big loss. And it's kind of echoed in The Burning Elephant. And that's your father's death. How has your father's death affected you in terms of the way you remember him? And how has your writing been informed by that trauma or helped to heal it? How my father affected me is a massive question. And I have been thinking about that. And I think, you know, partly certainly informed the fact that I became a writer because one of the things that happened after he died was uh, was I w was told to go and visit a, um, a therapist and they told me to keep a diary. And so that was one of the obvious ways and that's what started this whole writing caper. But in terms of um, how it affected me, my memory of him, I mean, my memory of him is extremely fond and loving. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I look forward to the homecoming. I mean, you know, some days I, some days when I'm in Melbourne, I, I, I just, when I don't know what to do, I sometimes just go to the cemetery and stay there. <laughs> That's weird to say, but yeah. How do you think your relationship with your father has influenced or affected your parenthood? You're the father of three wonderful young women. How has your relationship with your father, both while he was alive and now, influenced or affected mm. your own mm. fatherhood? Yeah. Well, I think um, he was a remarkable loving father and, 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 and my, my family are remarkable loving little people. <laughs> I had. Um, so in that sense, um, in that sense, uh, it's, it, you know, 
he's talked about language, what language we speak. I mean, my dad could speak Hindi, Marathi, Bengali, and and English, of course. Um, but he could speak the language, and I don't sound corny, but he could speak the language of the heart. He could speak the language of that twinkle in the eye. He could speak the language in his in his in his in his smile and his love, and that's how. I interact with people and that's how I interact with my children. And so genetics is a funny thing because these things are transferred. And when I see the little ones who are now big, um, bigger, <laughs> I remind them, you're big, but you're not quite big. You're still bigger. Um, um, genetics is marvelous, isn't it? And uh, I try and keep them out of the book, obviously, and, and a lot out of my writing, but but um, I see them, I see them, they see me and we see him. And so that's really cool. Now, you've also been very interested in Aboriginal stories and culture, having lived and worked in Alice Springs for over a decade before moving back to Melbourne. In fact, back to Keysborough, where you grew up and into the suburbs is set. As an immigrant interested in Indigenous stories and experiences, what inspired you or first interested you in Aboriginal culture, um, especially given how many Australians don't actually, are actually kind of divorced from a lot of immigrant and Aboriginal culture and stories and people, and especially given how disregarded Indigenous and tribal culture is in India. And how can immigrants and Indigenous Australians connect with each other, especially through the stories or experiences we might share? So when I when I was you know as a teenager in in Melbourne in Mulgrave in Victoria, growing up, and my teachers were talking about Aboriginal people in a very abstract way. This family from Darwin arrived, and I became a friend. I became friends with a very charismatic young man, the black prince who walked around the neighborhood and, you know, he was pretty cool. And uh, he's from Western Australia, grew up in Darwin and we became mates. And I write about that in the memoir. And um, yeah, those memories sort of stuck in my mind. And then, of course, I became a teacher later on, and, and I don't write about this, but, and, and as I mentioned, my dad was very keen to help educate people and, you know, help people. And so um, after my first job, which was at a very posh private school, I was also a scholarship kid, um, I decided to go out and work remotely in, in, uh, in Alice Springs and work in a few difficult I'm putting that in inverted commas, difficult schools, you know, like why would anyone like you go there and work there? Um, and I did that for many years. Um, it was fun. I mean, hey, my parents knew Mother Teresa and stuff, right? So, you know, they were, they were like, so I was, I was like given, I was brought up in a sense of like, yeah, you've got to serve and help others, right? And it's strange. You walk into a pub with me now in Alice Springs and you'll see these big tough guys and they'll come up to me and go, hey, Mr. Raja, how you going? <laughs> and, and people, walk, and, you know, I still look the same. Like, you know, I still look young. I feel go, who's that guy? You know, this big guy with big beard. Like, hey, hey, mister, you told me when I was in year 10. Hey, mister. 
And people go, what the hell? You come to Alice Springs and everyone's calling you Mr. Mr. Raja. And that's what would happen to my dad. It's really weird. Everyone would call him Mr. Raja. Now I'm like called Mr. Raja, you know, in the strangest, remotest parts of Australia. Of course, I don't teach as much anymore. And um, because they all knew me as this young guy and this young guy has an age, you know, I just look the same, act the same, still smile and just carry on with them if I see them because that's how I did when they were youngsters. And so they, we have this rapport, I said, I suppose. And um, yeah, so I don't know, maybe that friendship with the Black Prince helped me. I don't know why. I just felt, I felt connected very easily, you know, and it wasn't like, you know, I don't, I also fight, you know, it's like, you know, it's like fight, love. It's just the same feelings, you know, it's just, yeah. I don't know, I've, got, I've still got a lot of passion. I miss the desert. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, in a way, you became an, a double immigrant, you know, from yeah. India to, to Melbourne and then from Melbourne to what is really, for many Australians, a completely different country. You, know, you mean Alice? Yeah. Yeah, or the Northern Territory. Mm. I mean, I've never Northern. been there and I, mm-hmm. I would feel that I had gone to another country because it's such a different Oh, another culture. planet perhaps in some 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 places you could go to another planet. I mean, it looks a bit like Mars. Um, I remember I remember driving around with an old mate of mine, um, Malcolm. Uh, and he took me to his community once and he said we're going into other territory here, so Neil, you know that. But he said to me, hey, welcome to Mars. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. This is, and this was, this was when I was like, uh, this was one of the first trips I went out there, which was around 2004. Welcome to Mars, he said. And I was like, oh, yeah, it is a bit like Mars. It's amazing. I w- you know, I would so love to go to the Northern Territory, where my sister-in-law is actually living right now, and she's had the most amazing yeah. time. I hear, you know, she sends these emails about, you know, dogs being eaten by crocodiles and having to, you know, shoot, oh, yeah, so she's up top end. you know, buffaloes, you know, while she's on her morning jog and, you know, willy-willies coming and blowing, you know, the pool dry. And I think, oh my God, all I'm worried about is getting enough toilet paper in lockdown. <laughs> um, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because you talked about going mm-hmm. to a, a posh private school and I, you know, whenever I tell people where I went to school, they always look at me as if when I was seven or eight, mm-hmm. I sat my father down and said, Hey, can you please send me to the only military boarding school in the state where I'll be one of 10 non-white <laughs> boys who doesn't play football. It's bound to be character building. <laughs> and to be fair, it also built my therapist's holiday house. <laughs> Chris's Cholkis said, has said that race isn't the biggest issue in Australia, but class. Yeah. What do you think of that? And how do you think race informs class? Oh well, um, so that was that was really evident to me, you know, and my and my family, you know, when they first came to Australia, and they quickly realised, okay, um, you know, it, it affects it affects you in a number of ways, and where you live, who your friends are, where you educate your children, um, you know, it's like oh, what you eat, uh, how when you will die, um, all these things are affected by class and, you know, and, and people pick that up, children pick that up, um, where the, your postcode affects when you will probably die. Um, that's a reality check. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and where you go to school might affect uh, your job prospects and your TR scores and things like that. 
Um, so these are factors in, in Australian life. I mean, whether you, whether people like to acknowledge them or not, um, through, through, through circumstance, I went to a number of schools, um, and to be fair, I, 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 I still maintain friends from all of those different schools and, you know, and they're all cool, you know, great experiences. Um, but as I highlight in the book, very different experiences as well. And so I've just tried to show some of the examples that, that I, you know, that I encountered, but, um, but not saying that one is better or worse. I mean, and then when I went, went, um, looking back at that, you know, it's just, it's just the different lives we lead, you know, it's the different, uh, types of people we can be. I, I still, still processing, still processing some of these things, you know, there's no definite answer in my head about, um, what type of individual one becomes based on the environment you are in. I mean, that's, that's a fascinating um, idea that we might be someone else. If you say, for instance, Sunil, grew up in India and what type of person would you be? And um, what would your family be? And who would your wife be? And what would your children be like? And, and I often think like that, you know, what would my life be? You know, who would my children be? And, and in the same way, if you went to one school, you'd be something. And if you went to another school, you may be something else. I mean, that's not to say that we might still be similar people, but these things affect us. And the more you move around, you, you have these sort of questions in your head. You know what? I'm reminded of Anita Bruckner writing at the end of her novel, Look at Me, where she says, it was then that I saw the business of writing for what it truly was and is to me. It's your penance for not being lucky. It's an attempt to reach others and to make them love you. It's your instinctive protest when you have no voice at the world's tribunals and no one will speak for you. I would give my entire output of words past, present and to come in exchange for easier access to the world. And I don't go back on this. For once a thing is known, it can never be unknown. It can only be forgotten. And writing is the enemy of forgetfulness or thoughtfulness. For the writer, there is no oblivion, only endless memory. Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing those memories and those that thoughtfulness that is not only, you know, all throughout both your books, but in this wonderful, enlightening and very thought-provoking and moving conversation. Into the Suburbs, A Migrant's Journey is published by the University of Queensland Press. So why don't you drop into your local independent bookshop or drop them a line, especially if you're in the east coast of Australia, and see if they can't post it out to you. You'll be supporting Australian writers and Australian businesses who've been doing it tough even before the pandemic, and especially now with our two biggest cities in lockdown. You can find out more about Chris and his work at www.christopherraja.com. I'm Sunil Badami, and it's been an absolute pleasure spending this time with you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. 
This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you.